Please take your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 2. It's our normal pattern by conviction as a church to preach through the books in the Bible. We believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and that all scripture that is profitable, um, God has given us in the form of the 66 books of the Bible. Um, and so those 66 books, Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy chapter 4, to Pastor Timothy to, to preach the word, to be read, ready in season and out of season. So um, we do preach topical messages from time to time or isolated uh, individual passages, but our normal diet is verse by verse through the books in the Bible. We've recently begun uh, the gospel according to Matthew, and um, last Sunday we covered uh, verses 1 through 12 in Matthew chapter 2, um, the visit of the wise men uh, to behold the newborn king, and uh, now we're going to close out chapter 2 as we look at verses 13 through 23 that uh, Bobby also read. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. And uh, overall, the theme of these verses is the, the journey of Jesus's family. And at that time, Jesus's family, the, the man, Christ Jesus, the little boy, at this point, toddler, consisted of Joseph and, and Mary. So the first thing that Matthew tells us about in these verses is the escape to Egypt. The escape to Egypt in verses 13 through 15. So let's look at those verses again, starting with verse 13. Now, when they had departed, uh, they refers to the wise men from the east, who had come to behold the newborn king and offer gifts of, of worship to him. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So this is now the Second time that Matthew tells us about uh, an angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph in a dream. The first time was in chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, where the angel let the cat out of the bag, as it were, uh, and explained why Mary was pregnant and Joseph had nothing to do with it. There wasn't any other man who had anything to do with it either. And uh, in that dream, the angel also instructs Joseph to name the child Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So now this is the second time that an angel speaks to Joseph in a, in a dream. And just a couple of comments ab about that. Um, I, I believe that God can still speak to people in dreams, and, and I don't doubt that God does in extraordinary circumstances, speak to people 
in dreams. But this was not a common occurrence in the Bible, and I suspect that it's not a common occurrence now. Uh, God seems to send messengers and messages to his people on extraordinary uh, occasions. Uh, otherwise, God normally speaks to his people through his word. And uh, one way to test if the Lord is um, actually speaking to you, so to speak, in, in a dream or not, is to compare it, uh, compare that supposed message to the teaching of the Word of God. And uh, if what you're, what you're hearing supposedly is consistent with what God has already spoken, then that's a good thing. That's an important test to pass. But uh, this was an extraordinary occasion because God is caring for his, his son, his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's come into the world. Um, and um, it was an extraordinary circumstance because the life of the Son of God was threatened by Herod. And so that called for extraordinary measures for God to speak to Joseph. Hence, the angel spoke to Joseph in a dream. And then also you'll notice that this message from the angel was for Joseph to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And uh, I think I have a map here, yep. So this is from the ESV Study Bible. And... Um, this was walking distance, so the northeast tip or boundary of Egypt came way up over here, and this distance from Bethlehem to this boundary of Egypt was, was about 90 miles, and that was walking distance, not in a day for sure, but uh, over about a week or so, it was walkable. And also, it's a reminder for us that throughout the Old Testament scriptures, after the time of the Exodus, uh, Egypt became a place for the Jews to flee to and to seek refuge on a number of occasions. Sometimes, in fact, they seem to depend more on Egypt for refuge than God himself, and sometimes the prophets reproved them for that. But even at this time in the first century, Egypt was a safe haven for the Jews. There was a large Jewish community that had lived in, e that lived in Egypt at that time and for centuries, it turns out. So uh, it was sort of a natural place for the angel to instruct Joseph to take his uh, young family for refuge outside of the jurisdiction of Herod for safety for a period of time. And we read about that starting in verse 14. So Joseph, having heard this instruction from the angel in a dream, verse 14, he, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of, of Herod. So we have the uh, quick obedience here of Joseph again. We've seen that. Before, Joseph, we don't hear much from him 
in the, in the New Testament, but one thing that we do see is that he's an obedient follower of the God of the Bible. He's a good example of that. He hears this message from the angel, and he obeys. And he left by night under, under cover of darkness because the threat level was high. And so he wanted to take whatever precautions were available to him in order to protect his young family. And then uh, we read about the sojourn of Joseph and his young family in Egypt in uh, the, the rest of verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the, by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And that is a citation from the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. And uh, it's an interesting quotation because it's not a specific prophecy. Uh, God, through Hosea in that passage, is actually describing uh, the life of the nation of, of Israel. And so as Hosea wrote those words, the original meaning was or referred to God's calling the nation of Israel out of bondage in, the, uh, in, in Egypt. Uh, out of Egypt, God called his son, as it were, Israel. And uh, Matthew is using that basically as a, as a recapitulation in other words, he's, he's saying that um, that historical story, that historical providence involving God and Israel stands as an analogy, as a type of God's care of his, of his son Jesus, who's the antitype of, of Israel. Ancient Israel was God's son, lowercase s, Jesus is God's only begotten Son, capital S. And so uh, God's calling of Israel out of Egypt stands as a, a type of God's calling his one and only Son out of Egypt. Let me read for you the comments of Craig Blomberg in uh, the New American Commentary. Just as God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate his original covenant with them, so again God is bringing the Messiah who fulfills the hopes of Israel out of Egypt as he is about to inaugurate his new covenant. So the escape to Egypt. Secondly, Matthew tells us about the mass murder in verses 16 through 18. The mass murder. Notice verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now the veil has been removed. The disguise has been 
taken out of the way from, from Herod. Now we see what he was really up to. Remember when he was talking to the wise men earlier, he told them in verse 6, Go and search diligent, diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod had no intention whatsoever of worshiping the newborn king, Jesus. His plan all along was to destroy, to murder this newborn king because Herod was a, was a dictator. He was an authoritarian. In his little realm, he felt like he had all the power. He really didn't because he was a vassal of Rome, but uh, in terms of those who were under him, he had all the power in that particular jurisdiction, and he was jealous to preserve that, to keep that. And he didn't view the Messiah as someone to be served and worshipped. He viewed the newborn Messiah as competition, and he wanted no part of that. And so he decided to, uh, to execute this horrible plan, this Mass murder. Um, and so we put together the, the time, and some time had gone by, but he didn't know more precisely where, <clears throat> who the Messiah was or where exactly he was, didn't have GPS coordinates, didn't have a street address. And so just to play it safe, based on the time of the Messiah's birth, he decided to uh, murder all newborn sons, two years old and under, in Bethlehem and the region. And imagine with me as a mom, uh, for a moment, by the way, do you think that when Herod's soldiers went into those homes, that the dads and older brothers, maybe even moms, just sat back and let those soldiers murder those those babies in their homes, even though we don't have specific information, I'm, I'm going to uh, exegete the white space a, a little bit and assume that there were probably dads and brothers and maybe resisting mothers who were also murdered. And so the um, total number of um, infants who fit this description, babies, toddlers who fit this description, probably was, was limited. It, Bethlehem was a small town after all. I've uh, read that it's estimated that the specific children, 20 to 30, which is a, still a big number. And then you add in all of the murdered family members. Um, if this happened in our society today, we would call it mass murder. A whole group of people wiped out murderously. And then uh, Matthew's going to go on and quote from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, verses 17 through 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and he quotes from Jeremiah 31 in verse 15, a voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. And here we have another example of how the events surrounding Jesus' life uh, fulfilled the anticipation of the Old Testament scriptures. Rachel here in verse 18, uh, in the original um, word from the prophet Jeremiah, is an example of personification. So Rachel as an individual was the wife of the patriarch Jacob. And she was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. And they were both feared to be dead by their father in Genesis chapter 42 and verse 36. And so Rachel in Jeremiah 31 and verse 15 personifies the mothers in Israel. This is the original setting who mourned and wept after their sons had been forcibly removed from the land of Israel and carried into captivity. And uh, I think I have another map here. Let's see. Nope. Sorry. There is one in the ESV study Bible. But to, uh, when the Israelites were carried into captivity, they went north and then east to get over to Babylon and the uh, city, the village of Ramah is about five miles north of Bethlehem. So as um, Israel's captors are carrying, carrying them away into captivity, including children, um, the, the first city that they went past as they, as they left um, Jerusalem was, was Ramah. And so you can imagine the uh, mothers of these children in Jeremiah's time just being crushed that their sons are being carried away into captivity because not all the mothers were carried away with them. And uh, the result of that captivity um, was basically that Israel, for all intents and purposes, was no longer a nation. It was as if Israel was dead because there was no protection, no defensible borders. This foreign power could just uh, swoop in and take away these children from Israel and hold them in captivity. So it was as if Israel as a nation was dead. And so like that Old Testament tragedy, the mass murder of children in Bethlehem was intended by Herod to wipe out God's chosen son. That's the reason why it was fitting for Matthew to uh, cite that particular prophecy. So next in verses 19 through 23, we have, oops, there we go. The return to Nazareth. The return to Nazareth. Notice verses 19 through 20. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And we'll hear about that in verse 20. Uh, and so this 
this tyrant who was ruling the area surrounding Bethlehem died. And the historians tell us that this Herod died in about 4 BC, which would make the birth date of Jesus approximately 6 BC. So the Gregorian calendar that we follow is a little off. Jesus was not born in zero or even one, according to that calendar. In any event, um, the threats of this evil, authoritarian ruler uh, could not last forever. He, he died. And so here's the message of the angel to uh, Joseph again, the third time now, verse 20, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. It's basically the coast, coast is clear. You can return to the land of Israel. It's interesting that the angel doesn't say exactly where in Israel Joseph was supposed to take his family. It just, the angel just says it's safe to return to Israel. Verse 21 and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Again, Joseph's careful obedience. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, so this was one of Herod's sons, um, the former kingdom of King Herod was divided up into a tetrarchy and... Uh, Archelaus was one of the tetrarchs, and so Joseph is thinking to himself, well, the apple often doesn't roll too far from the tree, so I'm going to stay away from anyone who smells like Herod. So he decides it's better judgment uh, to not go back to Bethlehem. That was the birthplace of Jesus, but that's not where Joseph and Mary were from. They went to Joseph because of the census, and they were both of the house, they were both, Joseph and Mary, of the house and lineage of David. That's why they went to Bethlehem, but that's not where they lived. And so um, Joseph had a better idea. So he's afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and that is to the north. And uh, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And uh, there, once again, there's not a specific prophecy that says that he shall be called a Nazarene, but this is a theme of the prophets. And apparently this theme is the obscurity of the Messiah. In other words, when the Messiah comes into the world, he's not going to live inside the temple in Jerusalem and have uh, all of these horses at his disposal and uh, these soldiers. Instead, he was going to be a Nazarene. He was going to be uh, an obscure person by human standards and he was going to come from an obscure place in fact we would today we would call it a hick town 
Ridgecrest is not a hick town. There's 30,000 people, but in your kern is a hick town. <laughs> and Trona is even worse. Sorry, Barbara. <laughs> so that's the idea. The Messiah, according to the prophets, uh, would, be, would be called an obscure person, a hick, from a hick town, the hick town, in fact, of Nazareth in Galilee. And uh, that attitude is reflected in uh, Nathanael, one of the early disciples, John chapter 1 and verse 46. Can anything good come out of Trona, Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So I believe that's a reasonable interpretation that fits with the context of, of the New Testament. So the journeys of, or journey, I guess I did have another map, of um, Jesus' family. I do have some takeaways for you. That's what happened. Those are the facts. This is the journey. I have three quick takeaways for you. Looking at the story, what lessons can we take, take home with us and learn from? Well, the first one is that evil in the human heart will desperately resist the authority of Christ in a person's life. Evil in the human heart will desperately resist the authority of Christ in a person's life. You, you look at what Herod did. Why did he order this mass murder of all these little children in that region? Because he was desperate to protect, in his mind, his throne, his rule, his authority, his autonomy, he thought, within his domain. And he was so protective of that authority that he was, he was willing to commit this terrible act of, of mass murder. And my suggestion to you is that that kind of spirit is not isolated to King Herod. And that's the basic spirit that's in our hearts because of sin. Because we want to be our own king. We, naturally, we want to be our own ruler. We want to be our own Lord. And until the Holy Spirit does a miraculous, supernatural, divine work in our hearts, conquering our rebellion against God, then when our sense of authority and self-rule is threatened. We'll do almost anything to get rid of that. And here's the thing. Even after conversion, even after our stubborn will is subdued by the power of the Holy Spirit, sin does not disappear Sin is no longer on its throne in our hearts and lives, but it doesn't disappear. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote to us in Romans chapter 7. 
Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Paul himself was familiar with this dynamic of remaining sin in, an, in a believer. Romans 7, starting in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Romans chapter 6, you're not under bondage to sin anymore. You're not under sin's dominion. But Romans chapter 7, evil still lies close at hand. And it doesn't sit idly by. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, and you can relate to that. If you're a child of God, you want to please God. You want to obey God's commandments. And when you don't, you feel terrible. But in contrast to that, Paul says in verse 23, but I see in my members, in my flesh, Another law, listen to this, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sin, our remaining sin, doesn't appreciate Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks about how believers are no longer uh, in dominion to sin. We're not, but our remaining sin doesn't accept that. It is present, and it is at war with us, trying desperately to bring us back into its captivity again. And then think about this. It's not that we're all demon-possessed. It's not that the devil is in each one of us, but we do know that the devil is the father of lies. He's the original sinner. And there's a, um, an alliance between the devil and our remaining sin. Think about this. In Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12, we read this warning. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. The devil is desperate. Our remaining sin as believers is desperate. Its time is short. When Jesus comes or calls us home, then we will be completely free from the existence of sin. There will no longer be this war that's raging within us. Amen. But until that time, sometimes our remaining sin, probably in alliance with the devil himself, will undertake these acts of desperation in our lives. And haven't you experienced that? You're, you're, you're on the verge of making a life-changing decision. And you know that you need to make a decision that will honor the Lord Jesus Christ who bought you. And then there, it seems like there's this attack. 
And it seems hard. It seems like there's this invisible army that's opposing you making that decision. Or maybe you're not a believer and you're considering coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and being saved. And it seems like at that particular moment in time, you feel these temptations and these thoughts and these powers like you've never felt them before trying to keep you from coming to Christ. I I have felt that. We see that personified and exemplified in Herod, but this spirit continues. Here's another takeaway. Thinking about Herod and this terrible mass murder that he was responsible for. Murdering children is still evil. Next Sunday, today's January 15th, next Sunday is January 22nd. It will be the 49th anniversary of uh, the Supreme Court decision, Roe versus Wade, which uh, invented, out of thin air, the constitutional right to an abortion. And uh, since that time, I know it's hard to estimate exactly, but it's estimated that about 63 million innocent babies have uh, died in their mother's womb because of abortion. And I know that a lot of people in our culture, maybe some of you, I don't know, you're thinking to yourself, man, didn't you Christians get what you wanted on June 24th last year when the Supreme Court issued a ruling basically saying, stop exegeting the white spaces in the Constitution. There isn't a constitutional right to abortion. You can create one. All you have to do is create an amendment. Go through the constitutional process and create a constitutional amendment. But the Constitution as it stands does not create... uh, Um, provide this right to an abortion. Anyway, some of you might be thinking, why are you still talking about abortion? Don't you see that that Supreme Court ruling cost the Republicans their red wave and all that? Maybe it did. But here's the thing. Our fight for the unborn as believers has never been purely political. Just because the Supreme Court has ruled the way that it did last June doesn't mean abortion stopped. We all know that. It didn't even make it illegal. And we all know that since then, California, the state that I'm a native from and I still love, California is now like an abortion destination. It's just, it's so evil. And I just listened to what the pro-abortion movement says. And I sometimes think, do you hear yourself? Really, that's, that's what you believe? Do you know that in, in California and in all other pro-abortion states, it's legal to take an unborn child's life up to the point when they're coming out of their mother's womb. And my, my daughter is expecting our first granddaughter 
And uh, she gets so thrilled because she sees these um, ultrasound images. I think she could, I think she has a book full of them now. And it's just so obvious. What is that? It's a baby. Give me a break. It looks just like a baby. It's all the parts of a baby. Has unique DNA from the mother, unique fingerprints and all of the rest. But it's, it's when my daughter gives birth, there's going to be a relocation of Scarlet. But nothing's going to change in terms of her composition. She's, she's a baby, but right now she's unborn. And so we're shocked that this king could murder 20 to 30 children. And I'm afraid that we as Americans, including me, frankly, that we're numb to these staggering numbers, 63 million unborn babies butchered in their mother's wombs, not by a sword from a Roman soldier, but from the the murderous instruments of an abortionist. Listen to the words of Pastor John MacArthur. These words are a little bit, uh, the statistics are a little bit dated, but you'll, you'll get the point. America as a nation is highly committed by law and by practice to a form of mass murder. This nation, which certainly prides itself on its humanitarianism, is in a murderous cycle of violence that makes the Nazi Holocaust look mild by comparison. Nearly two million babies are aborted a year in America. Every third baby conceived now is being murdered. And that's even greater among the African-American community, which I think is something that is being suppressed in our our nation. There's a holocaust of unborn African-American babies. Among teenage women, there are 736 abortions for every 1,000 births. Among married women, abortions now exceed births. And you know our birth rate's going down, don't you? The lowest it's ever been in our nation's history, about 1.6 children per uh, mother. More babies are killed than are born. Some would tell us that there is an abortion about every 15 seconds in America. How did we get here? Johnny Erickson Tata wrote this. Though gradually, though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable became tolerable and then acceptable and then legal and then applaudable. That's well put by Johnny Erickson Tata. And then the, the final takeaway is that the saving work of Christ cannot be destroyed. The saving work of Christ cannot be destroyed. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that behind Herod, murdering all these babies and trying to murder Jesus was Satan himself. Satan 
worked through Herod to try to destroy baby Jesus. In his mind, Herod's mind, he's eliminating the competition. In Satan's mind, he's trying to eliminate the Messiah. He knows the scriptures. He knows what's up. And he's trying to get rid of Jesus himself. But he failed in Matthew chapter 2. And he's going to fail on other occasions as well. And then, towards the end of Jesus' life, in fact, the night in which, uh, the night before he died, the Bible tells us that he entered Judas. And then Satan used Judas to betray Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders who then were able to have Jesus crucified by Pontius Pilate. And Satan must have been thinking during that whole process, aha, I finally got him. He got away from me. In Herod's time, he flew, he fled to Egypt. He escaped my clutches on other occasions, but now I've got him. Well, the Bible tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he put Satan and his minions to an open shame. God triumphed over Satan himself, over all of the forces and machinations of evil. God triumphed over them in the cross of Christ. And that's such a great illustration of the fact that the saving work of Christ cannot be destroyed. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. The devil hates you. He is trying to destroy you. And he's not just trying to harass you and make your life inconvenient. He's trying to drag you to hell with him because he has been around long enough to see plenty of professing Christians deny their faith, whether in word or lifestyle. But here's the promise of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The good work that God has begun in your life from the moment he saved you, that good work he will perfect until the day of Christ Jesus. God will never give up on you if you're a child of his. God will never allow you to be ultimately destroyed. He promises to preserve us, to protect us. He's promised uh, that the inheritance that he's given to us is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who, Peter says, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
the saving work of Christ cannot be destroyed. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for all that you did in sending forth your Son into this world. Thank you for the exact time, place, in which Jesus was born. Thank you for the way even in which you used the evil intentions of this evil ruler, Herod, to accomplish your eternal purposes. And we thank you that Jesus lived and he did die, but then he rose again so that sinners like us, like us, would be saved. We pray in his name. Amen.